you don't look upon our sin. Lord God, you look upon the blood of your Son that was shed for us. God, we pray and we thank you for the, the work that Christ completed for your children. God, for those who are called according to your purpose. God, we love you and we thank you and we lay our lives in your hands today because of Christ's good work for us. So in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Good morning. Invite our two through four-year-olds at this time to be dismissed to toddler nursery and to children's church. Those of us who remain in the sanctuary, if you would please turn to Psalm 36. Psalm 36. For the choir director, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord. Transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For it flatters him in his own eyes concerning the discovery of his iniquity and the hatred of it. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He has ceased to be wise and to do good. He plans wickedness upon his bed. He sets himself on a path that is not good. He does not despise evil. Your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like a great deep. O Lord, you preserve man and beast. How precious is your loving kindness, O God. And the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They drink their fill of the abundance of your house. And you give them to drink of the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. O continue your loving kindness to those who know you. And your righteousness to the upright in heart. Let not the foot of pride come upon me, and let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the doers of iniquity have fallen, they have been thrust down, and cannot rise. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word. Father, for the gracious gift that your word is to us. Father, for the kindness that you have shown us by giving us a special revelation of you that we might know you, and that we might make you known. Father, today, allow your word to work in our hearts through the work of the Holy Spirit that abides in us because of the gracious gospel of salvation of your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. So this morning, as we walk through this psalm together, it's an interesting tool that's used by David for this particular poetic expression. And it's the the speaking of transgression. Transgression speaks, we see here at the start of verse 1. It's the personification of sin. Sin becomes an actual person, has qualities and characteristics of an individual, namely the capacity to speak, to communicate. This is theologically profound because throughout Scripture both in the Old and in the New Testament, the capacity of speech 
is considered a divine quality, either a quality that God himself possesses. Jesus is called the word. God speaks creation into existence or a shared quality of image bearing of the divine given to human beings. When you look through the creation story of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, you see that one of the gifts given to the image bearer is the capacity to name things, to speak things as they are, to speak and understand the word and the truth of God. Uh, And there are literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of verses throughout the scripture that give warning about how we use our tongues and our mouths. And the danger of misused speech. And so there's this sense here in which the speaking of transgression, transgression taking on the capacity to be able to verbalize things is sort of the, the greatest demonstration of anti-image bearing that can exist. Because the use of human speech should be for the glory of God. And we see that later in the psalm. And so this personification of sin. So what is it that transgression is doing here when it speaks? So let's kind of walk through it. So to whom is transgression speaking? Transgression is speaking to the ungodly. That's what it says. Transgression speaks to the ungodly. And that makes sense. Because the ungodly is friends with, companions with, goes hand in hand with transgression. Transgression is a part of, not the whole of, what makes us ungodly. To do those things which are in violation to the will of God. Where does this conversation take place? This conversation takes place within the ungodly one's heart. Now, I I, I want to caution us, and I don't want to get off onto a tangent about textual criticism and that sort of thing. But there are some ancient Hebrew manuscripts that here, instead of reading transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart, there are some ancient Hebrew manuscripts that say transgression speaks to the ungodly within my heart. Which, by the way, makes this a really different kind of psalm. Just want to throw that out there because we may borrow a little of that as we walk through this. But it's within the heart of the ungodly. What is it that transgression is speaking? You see, once you get to verse 2, what does it do? What does the speech do? It flatters him, the ungodly one, in his own eyes. So there's this flattery that transgression is speaking into the heart. And remember, the heart is the epicenter of desire, that that which we will to do. And then finally, why is transgression speaking so it's to the ungodly within his heart or within my heart what is it speaking it's speaking flattery why is it speaking this way to me to keep him from seeing and hating his sin look at what it says it speaks flattery to him concerning what into verse 2 the discovery of his iniquity he can't see it and the hatred of it you can't hate it if you don't know it's there this is what transgression does. It takes the, 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 the moldability of our hearts and it shapes our hearts in such a way, our desires in such a way that though we are sinning, we don't see our sin. We don't see it as sin and therefore we don't hate it as sin. The big fancy theological term for this is self 
justification. We excuse away our sinning. It's what Adam and Eve did in the garden when confronted by God in their sin. Adam, have you eaten from this tree that I told you? Well, this woman. And I know that we think that he's blaming the woman there. Actually, he's blaming God for giving him the woman. If you read it closely enough. God, this woman that you gave me. He turns to the woman. Uh, this snake you put here. Not my fault. I didn't really do anything wrong. And what are the outward effects of this self-deception that comes? Sin begetting sin. Sin leading us away from itself and toward a place of self-justification. What is it that it does for us? Well, the outward effects are listed here. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. When transgression speaks into the heart, says Jesus taught, it's not what goes into a man that makes him undefiled, but what comes out of a man that defiles him. From the heart a man speaks, from the heart a man acts, from the heart, the heart a man lives, from the heart a man looks, from the heart a man runs and he goes and he touches. All of the things are driven by that inward desire. And the outward effects of transgression speaking into the heart and causing us to turn a blind eye to our sin and not hating our sin as the scripture teaches us that we should is that our words that then come out reflect the transgression that is there. Not only that, but this, it says here in our text, the next part of that line in verse 3, is that he, the, this ungodly one, has ceased to be wise and has ceased to do good. When we allow transgression to educate us, to inform us, to direct us, to guide us, to lead us, you cannot both follow sin and be wise and good. You can't do both at the same time. It's two completely different pathways. Two different directions of walking. And you can't walk on both. What else does this cause him to do when transgression causes us to turn a blind eye to our sin? This person plans wickedness at his leisure. That's the language here. Where he plans wickedness upon his bed. When... The, the idea is, is that when the day is done and your work is over and it is time for you to enjoy your rest, when this person enters into his most leisurely time, he uses that leisurely time to plan more wicked things. Rather than using that leisurely time to continue to pursue the goodness of God, the greatness of God, the glory of God, the well-being of his fellow man, the well-being of his own house, how can I promote that which is still wicked? What other wicked schemes can I get into? And of course, this ungodly one that's listed here would not identify any of these schemes, any of this planning as wickedness. Because remember, it's this vicious cycle. Transgression has spoken into his heart in such a way that he's turned his eyes away from calling his sin sin and acknowledging the hatred he should have of it. Therefore, all these things he's planning that are wicked, he's not seeing that they're wicked. That which is evil, he's calling good. That which is good, he's calling evil. And he's pursuing after it. And he's become blind to the dangers 
of his plans. This is the tragedy of depravity. It says here as you continue that he walks a wicked path. He sets himself on a path that is not good. And, and friend, not, not to sound like I'm in any way denying or belittling the sovereignty of God. And there are great arguments to be made for God setting people on a path that is wicked. There's a giving over that God does to us. We see it in Romans to our depravity and wickedness. But I want you to hear where the responsibility of this action lies. He, this ungodly one who is listening to transgression, lie to him, sets himself on a path that is not good. There's no blame game that is allowed here. There's no, hey, this woman you gave me. Hey, this snake that you gave me. Hey, this, I was born in this environment. You gave me this king. You gave, what, it doesn't matter. He set himself on a path that is not good. Stops right here. And friends, that's the thing. If ever a person stands before the Lord in judgment, devoid of the presence of Christ, as much as I believe in sovereignty and as much as I believe in election, as much as I believe in the predestining foreknowledge of God, the judgment statement to God, to that individual who is standing before him in judgment won't be, huh, I didn't elect you. That's not what he's going to say to them. He's going to say to them, depart from me, you who works lawlessness. You have set yourself on a path that is not good. And the full weight of God's judgment will fall on that man because of that man. Make no mistake. God is a righteous judge. And this is a warning to the one listening to transgression in their heart. And look at the full circle of it at the end. He does not despise evil. And friends, this looks, this looks radically different but depending on circumstances. And so I, I, I want to kind of throw out two biblical comparisons here. Because when we read a section like this one, and I think one of the reasons why the other reading of this in some Hebrew manuscripts might actually be accurate and David might be evaluating himself and referencing himself as the ungodly one. When you think about Jesus' ministry, when you think about the people that Jesus engaged, and so you have someone it's just a complete train wreck of morality that Jesus would have engaged toward the end in his crucifixion like Herod. Real easy for us to look at this and say, he put himself on a bad path and he despised what was good and he loved what was evil and he turned a blind eye to his sin. It's real easy to do that. But Jesus also had strong opposition to the Pharisees. And they knew God's word. They loved God's law. They taught in the synagogues often. They were public preachers of 
the glory of God. They long for the restoration of Israel. Their actual outward actions were rarely sinful. And if you were to quiz them about how they felt about certain social activities as that related to the will of God, they would have declared those things to be evil. They would have called evil evil and good good. This is what they would have done. And yet Jesus, looking deep into their hearts, says that they were blind guides leading the blind straight into hell. Because sometimes our wickedness manifests itself as a false righteousness. This is the dangerous, most scary thing about the end of the Sermon on the Mount. In my opinion, one of the most terrifying verses in all of the Bible. But, but, but Lord, did we not proclaim your name? Did we not, did we not do many miracles? Did we not cast out demons in your name? And notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't correct him. Say, yeah, you didn't do any of that stuff. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. When Judas went around with the twelve, nobody ever came back and reported, hey, the eleven of us had a really great time casting out demons and healing the sick. Judas had a real tough time with it. Nobody says that. It took a long time for people to figure out that Judas was off. Why? Because Judas looked like everybody else. It's the story of the seed that is spread. There's a third seed that grows and looks really healthy. Just never bears any fruit. This needs to be challenging to all of us. Because when we hear words like wickedness and evil and those deceit and these kinds of things, it's really easy for us to just dismissively say, oh, yeah, 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 that stuff that those people do or that stuff that I used to do or that stuff that I used to be a part of, when in fact, in the Old Testament, the prophets declared when people with a wrong heart and a wrong motivation and a wrong desire and a wrong longing were still offering the right kinds of sacrifices and the right kinds of prayers on the right kinds of days and the right kind of way, outwardly they were fulfilling a law of righteousness. And God said, I think that your sacrifices and your feast days are an abomination. Ouch. Why? Because God's concerned about the heart. And what's going on with this heart? This heart has transgression speaking into it, not God and His Word. Newsflash, that can actually happen to us all. So, what do we do? What do we do? Do we bemoan? Do we enter into gripping, debilitating fear and concern about our salvation? Do we enter into a constant cycle of rededicating our lives? Do we switch denominations completely and go to ones where we can just get saved every other week and get baptized over and over again? Like, what do we do? What do we do? Knowing that this can be true about us, what do we do? What we do is what David does here next. We thank God for His mercy. As great as my sin is, God's grace is greater. Look at what it says. 
Your loving kindness, verses 5 through 9, your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. And I like the poetic English thing that they did with that. The literal rendering is your loving kindness, O Lord, is in the heavens. Just doesn't extend to it. It's all the way up there in it. Like you got to go to the heavens to get to it. It's that incredibly large and magnificent and widespreading. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. You preserve both man and beast. How precious is your loving kindness, O God. The children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They drink their fill of the abundance of your house. You give them to drink of the rivers of your delight. For with you is the fountain of life, not the fountain of youth. I never really understood people's infatuation with the fountain of youth until they became less youthful. I get it now. My niece would love to find a fountain of youth. That'd be great. Because one of them clicks when I go upstairs and the other one clicks when I come downstairs. I, I told Amanda I don't need to go see the knee doctor about it because they're kind of balancing each other out. So it's good. In your light, we see light. In your light, we see light. It, okay, so your loving kindness, O oh Lord. Yes, this first section is the source material to the really cool song that's going through everybody's heads right now. I won't sing it. But your love, O oh Lord, reaches to the heavens. Your faithfulness. Stretches to the sky. They're just they're singing this part of the Psalms. Okay, with a really cool deep voice and a driving djembe. Okay, so anyway, really great. What is God like? Question that people ask and that they want to know. What is God like? God is like this. His mercy and his faithfulness reaches to the heavens. Now, I, I obviously we need to try to keep this in the context of David writing this. The heavens, from the perspective of a human, a thousand or so years before Jesus-ish, give or take, trying to understand the expanse of the sky above them. That's big. But I want to put a trump card on that. Let's move this into the 21st century. A human in the 21st century trying to understand the expanse of the sky above them, way bigger than David's. I know everybody doesn't, you know, nerd out on the astronomy stuff like I do, but they keep launching stuff out there. It keeps taking pictures and measuring stuff and trying to figure out, hey, can we reach the end of this? And every time they get something that's able to do a little bit more than the last thing did, the thing's way bigger than they ever thought that it was. Your love, O oh Lord, reaches to the heaven. We haven't found the end of it. I think there's a reason we haven't found the end of it. Because there's a metaphor that needs to get matched with it. You're not going to find the end of the mercy of God. You're just not going to. God's mercy and faithfulness reaches to the heavens. His righteousness is like the mighty mountains. Real Big mountains are overwhelmingly impressive. 
And there are great people who train for most of their lives to try and climb them. The hardest and biggest of them. Impressive feats that you have to go through. And some have reached the top of them. And seen views that we can only share in pictures. You know what happens to most of those people when they try to do it? They die. They don't make it. They don't make it. You know what happens to most of the ones who do make it? They're studying and finding out now they have long-term health problems. Because by the time they get up there and the thinness of the oxygen and the effort that it took to get up there in the thinness of the oxygen causes them to have long-term health problems for the rest of their lives. Because it's just not a place a person should be that high up. In that difficult of an environment. God, your righteousness is like a mighty mountain. Go and try to push and move one of those mountains. Go and try to scale it freehand, without training, without assistance, without a team. Try to reach the end of it and try to to, to overcome the greatness of it. Try to not be awe-inspired by it. God's righteousness is like this. It is not movable by human power. And... If a mountain were to fall on you, it would crush you. God's righteousness crushes our tendency to let transgression speak to our heart. God, your judgments are like the great deep, like the ocean. You want to know what's scarier than a mountain? The bottom of the ocean. (laughs) Deepest point in the ocean they have now discovered is taller than the highest mountain that we see on earth. And even with all of our exploring, the last thing I read, it's been dated, so it may have increased a little bit by now. But they feel that they've only explored meaningfully about 7% of the ocean. They're still not sure. As long as we've been here and all the stuff that we've been doing and the great technologies that we have and the other worlds that we've explored and the places that we've sent things to, we've had people walk on the moon and we still only know about 7% of our oceans and what they contain and what they're like. Your judgments are are like the great deep. This is what our God is like. And what does He do for His covenant people? What happens to God's covenant people when they begin to understand that they should thank God for His mercy because His mercy is far greater than the transgression that speaks into our heart? God's people... Find God's mercy to be precious. I have to admit, when I read this and was studying this, it was very difficult for me not to hear Gollum's voice in verse 7 talking about his precious. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I feel sorry for you. Go home and watch the movies later. Read the book if you want an even better experience. But it should be precious to us. God's mercy should be precious to us. Because friends, if it were not for the mercy of God, we would still just be listening to transgression speak to our hearts. We would be blind to our sin. God's people get to take refuge in the shadow of God's wings. The covering of of the bird over its young. These who are in God's covenant get to drink their fill. Scripture usually discourages gluttony. 
except in the case of consuming on the greatness and the glory of God. When it comes to God's mercy, when it comes to God's goodness, when it comes to God's grace, there is a call for God's covenant people to feast beyond their fill. Hunger and thirst for it so that you can be satisfied. They drink their fill of God's delights, of the abundance of God's house. And that fountain that they're drinking from, what is it a fountain of? It is a fountain of life. Friends, you listen to transgression in your heart, it only gives you death. And it also gives us an abundance of light. By God's light, we see all other things. In your light, we see light. That's, by the way, we don't have time. That's a crazy statement. I see light by your light. What does that mean? There's a lot of things that it can mean. But I'm going to tell you in the context of this psalm and transgression speaking to the heart and needing to glory in the mercy of God, delivering us from transgression speaking to our heart. In your light, we see light. Guess what? Because there, in you, God, there is no darkness at all. And if I am righteously in your presence, that means that when that light shines in and through me, there's no darkness at all in me either. That means I'm not letting transgression speak into my heart. I'm instead resting in the mercy of God, wearing the righteousness of Jesus. Because when God sees me, thanks be to God, when God sees me, he does not see the sinner listening to transgression in his heart. He sees the glorious righteousness of his son Jesus clothing me as a blanket of mercy. And so what's the request then? What's the request? Continue your loving kindness. Oh, continue your loving kindness to those who know you. Your righteousness to the upright in heart. Listen to that. Listen to that. To those who know you. Title of the sermon is Jesus, mercy for our depravity. Transgression wants to speak into our heart. That is what it means to be depraved. It's what it means to have a heart bent toward evil continually from our youth, as the scripture says. But those who know you, continue your mercy to those who know you. And how do we know the Lord? Only in Christ. There is no other way. You must know the Son to know the Father. Jesus made this very plain. Very plain. Said it quite aggressively, actually, in the Gospel of John. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Those who know you continue your mercy. And how do we know you? Through the work of your Son. And then there's a request. On top of continuing the mercy, 
there is a request to keep me from pride. Friends, this is the great catch-22 of the gospel, and there is a catch-22 of the gospel. When transgression is speaking into my heart, and I'm blinded to the presence of my sin, and I don't hate it as I should, I don't think that I need the Lord. But once God's mercy has come into my life and He's begun to transform me, there's a new temptation. And that new temptation is to presume upon the grace of God because I have such confidence in the work that God did some time ago that I'm not attentive to the work that God should continue to be doing in my life if I'm truly walking with Christ now. Friends, the gospel is not a past tense experience. One of the great old Baptist theologians used to say it like this. In the gospel, I was saved. I am being saved. And one day I will be saved. When the psalmist here cries out, do not let the foot of pride come upon me. Friends, how easily would it be to see and recognize our deplorable, depraved condition in the city of man? Redeemed by Christ and carried to his banquet table, crowned with a crown of life, clothed in a robe of righteousness, with a feast spread before us, with a place to be seated with Christ in judgment in heavenly places and not suddenly become proud of this. In a screw tape letters in the instruction of the demons, C.S. Lewis said, I tell you what. All you have to do is make them proud in their humility. We can still get them. And what is it David's crying out here? Don't let the foot of pride grab a hold of me. Keep me from pride. Why? Because the doers of iniquity will fall. And once they've been thrust down, they cannot rise back up. It's a dire warning given at the end of this. Don't trust in the wicked wretchedness of your own heart. Flee away from that. Allow God's mercy to overwhelm that. That's salvation. But once you have come under the mercy of God, do not presume upon the grace of God and think that you can live as you wish and as you want. That you can dabble your foot back in the city of man and that God has to be okay with this. This was the great area of the leaders in Jesus' day. We have Abraham as our father. They had this spiritual heritage and were presuming upon the grace of God. And Jesus said, I don't care anything about that. You can make these rocks become children of Abraham. What is it that God wants? What does the Scripture say? A broken heart, contrite spirit. These he will not despise. The person who in humility is constantly on their knees before the Lord, thanking him for their mercy, will be lifted up by the Lord. And this is what Jesus does for us by his grace and for his glory. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for this truth from your word. Father, thank you. Thank you.
that you have shown us the kind of mercy that would cause us not to listen to transgression speaking to our heart. Father, until the full day of glory one day, until we separate from this life, until we are spiritually in your presence, and as we continue to long for the full renewal of all things in the final resurrection, Father, until the day of passing from this life into the next, we will have to wage war with our flesh. We will have to battle against sin. We will have to put to death the deeds of the flesh. We will always run the risk of transgression speaking into our hearts. Father, thank you for your mercy that it reaches to the heavens, that your righteousness is a mighty mountain, that your judgments are like the great deep. Father, let us find your loving kindness, your loving mercy precious to our souls. And continue with that mercy in our lives to keep pride at bay. We thank you that Jesus is mercy for our depravity. In his name we pray. Amen. I invite you to stand as we sing a song of response together this morning.